Who's always going to good parties? Am I? Yeah, your stories. I'm just like, man, I just want to go. <laughs> I know. I'd like to be at all of those parties. Me too. I, I watch them and I just look so salty. <laughs> I'm like, mm-hmm. Welcome to the Poet Salon, a podcast where we talk to poets over a drink we've prepared especially for them. I'm Gabrielle Bates. I'm Duji Taha. And I am Luther Hughes. This week, we're talking with Bill Cardi about clouds, clarity, and clowns. (laughs) (laughs) Our signature drink for this episode is a Grecian Laurel 75, a very tasty, very boozy concoction that involves roasted lemon and bay leaf lemonade, gin, and Prosecco. Bill Cardi is the author of Huge Cloudy by Octopus Books and the chat book Refugium. He holds degrees from Dartmouth College and the University of North Carolina Wilmington, and he has received poetry fellowships from the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown, Artist Trust, Hugo House, and Jack Straw. He was awarded the 2017 Emily Dickinson Award from the Poetry Society of America, and his poems have recently appeared in the Boston Review, Plowshares, Oversound, and Iowa Review, among other journals. Originally from coastal Maine, Bill now lives in Seattle, where he is senior editor at Poetry Northwest and teaches at Hugo House, the University of Washington Robinson Center for Young Scholars, and Edmonds Community College. But before we jump into our conversation with Bill, we're going to answer a question from our audience. So, why is everyone obsessed with Bridget, Piggy, and Kelly? That's the question. Seems like Gabby, you have to answer. Gabby, this. I know. <laughs> oh my god, I'm gonna get emotional. I'm gonna cry just thinking about it. Um, Bridget Piggy and Kelly is a poet that is very important to me and to many others. Um, she's incredible. She only wrote three books, which I think helps people be obsessed with her because there's like this very limited quantity to be obsessed over. Um, and she died in 2016. Uh, death also tends to make people obsessed with other people. Um, and there's just something about her poems that I've never encountered in any other poet. It's just, and it's really hard to put words to for me. Um, it's like the soul of her poems gets me. And that's like all I really know how to say. It. It's like so strange and weird and yet spiritual and sincere I don't, but creepy, I don't know. Is I just feel like she gets me. Um, and also she was super private in her life, which I think also tends to make people obsessed with other people when like they don't know a lot about them. It's easy to maybe glorify or get obsessed. I don't know. Why do you all think that people seem so obsessed with Bridget all of a sudden? Mm, I just think... Okay, for all the reasons that you said, of course. And also, I think she does certain things that people shouldn't, quote-unquote, shouldn't do in poetry and gets away with it. Like use the word soul? Like soul, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, the poem song starts with the word listen. Like, uh. first of all, <laughs> Bridget. <laughs> and now everyone does that. And now everyone, yeah. Now I, everyone has a poem listen. that's like, listen. <laughs> listen, <laughs> right. But the something she does that you can't pull off, and I think it's something to do with the way she approaches um language and the image and also there's some kind of like again creepy undertone to it all mm-hmm. but it's still so uh, 
<sighs> straightforward. It's it's weird. It's so straightforward, but then it's like this isn't something. But other, then it's not something else is happening here, though. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like um, every time I read a Bridget McGee and Kelly poem, she's like challenging the idea of beauty. Mm. Like, <laughs> I've sort of had this idea in my head uh, for a minute now, but like, things are just strange until you realize you're gonna die, and then it becomes beautiful, mm. right? But like she manages to keep things strange, mm-hmm. but like also like includes death. Yeah. So like, I don't like it. Just does not <laughs> compute, right? Like if you accept mm. the former, like I don't mm. know how she does the things that she does. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's like she's just tapping into something. Yeah. It feels like to me, and she builds mm. worlds. I think that's another thing that yes. I. Yes like really vibe with in her poems. She's building this world to read a Bridget Piggy Kelly poem is to enter this world that, yeah. that operates by its own logics. It's got its own sorts of animals, its own people. Um, and it's almost like a short story in that way, but it's yeah. very much a poem. Yeah. It's like mm-hmm. highly speculative. Mm-hmm. Right. I think, I think like there's, it's mystical and like fable like yeah. often. Fable like is a great word mm-hmm. to describe yeah. her work. And, and like the world that she creates is like so sort of close to ours, except like, I don't know that it's even necessarily that it's our world on its side. It's just like a particular like slice, mm-hmm. right? She's only letting you in on certain aspects. Um, and there's enough there that you can like build your own world with. But like what she's giving you is, uh, yeah, just like allows your imagination to go, <laughs> even though like her imagination is equally as present, mm. it feels like, which is an impressive ass feat. Yeah. I just love the way she talks about animals, to be honest. Like just that <laughs> alone, I'm just like, I can't talk about an animal like this. Like how are you doing that? Like yeah, from like, right? from things like goats to things like a dead bird. And it's like, wait. The dead doe. The dead doe. That's sometimes my favorite Bridget Pekin Kelly poem mm. is dead doe. That's a really good poem. Mm. She just, I don't know how she does it. Yeah, it's magic. I think that's why people are obsessed with yeah. it. Is there's a limited quality and a lot of it is magic. Yeah. A lot of it. Yeah. All of it, actually. I've never read a bad really? Bridget Pagin I mean, there poem. are poems that feel more forgettable, but there's like 10 poems that I will like hold close to my chest till I die. Yeah. That's a her. lot of poems. That's hold. a lot of poems. Oh, one, from one person. Yeah. Often there's like one that's like kind of memorable, but hers like change me. Like I cry when I read some of them. Yeah. Yeah. Your work is so uh, clearly in conversation mm-hmm. with hers. Mm-hmm. It feels that way. I definitely I read a so, lot about animals. Yeah. <laughs> I I was the last at this table to pr- Bridget, Piggy, and Kelly. And I had encountered your work first, Gabby. And then <laughs> and then I read her and I was like, oh. <laughs> Is this? I oh. see. <laughs> this makes a lot more sense now. Word. Influences. Aww. Yeah. It's so funny. Yeah, being in grad school made me feel like I had to have an idea of what my poetic lineage was. Um, that was something that was coming up a lot in conversation that professors were always asking and I had no idea. Um, so it feels really good to have found Bridget's work and feel like we are in conversation because I feel like I'm not quite floating so alone (laughs) in the, yeah, in that sort of like family tree of poetry. Anyway, everyone should be obsessed with Bridget Peking Kelly (laughs) is my take. (laughs) She is worthy. Uh, we are not worthy. Mm, that's the truest thing. Speaking of worthiness, let's hold over to this worthy conversation we have with Bill Cardi. So worthy. So worthy. 
Silk Norsei. I could be quiet when asked. How quiet? No one asked. I fell into a thicket of bad calls. I nodded a delicate surge about my neck. Wind battled heat again. Whatever we wrote, it could have been better or cooler. How cool. As sleep perspires with the city in mind, a shy sleep thinking of so many things at once. How shy, as if even an ant can crush my attention span, might we resolve this blue before we lose it? How blue, as the horse turning its green eye from the belfry to watch a butterfly split by lightning, the butterfly's butterfly born half male, half gray, and silent as silver secreted within the copper coin. How secret? Well, there was a line we could cross, but it wasn't this one, nor this. Um, so there is a line in another poem, Aurora, that says, um, that's not real weakness, says the mother. Tell me a real weakness. And so for me, the book, the speakers in this book lean towards um, a need to clarify or to find clarity. And even in this poem you just read, uh, Silk Norsei, there's um, questions offered and an immediate response to the answer. So I'm wondering really um, how perception or self-perception plays a role in your poetry. Um, and even do you find yourself working towards or writing towards the need to clarify? Or whatever like the opposite of clarifying is yeah. even. Like this, it's not this. Right, um, yeah, yeah that like self-interrogation in that moment like a negative clarification yeah 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 Yeah. that's that's interesting when i it's very like subliminal but when when i was organizing i was thinking of the beginning of the book as being slightly more about the self um maybe interrogating the self interrogating the world (laughs) that Mm. the self perceives and then as the book moves on um like dealing more explicitly with relationships and things like that. An old teacher read it and was like, it begins in the clouds and, <laughs> and then it like becomes into focus. And I was like, Oh, cool. <laughs> like that's, a, <laughs> that's something you like only right an old on, teacher yeah. could like re- And you're like, and then you read into that. You're like, Oh, that's a compliment. And then you're like, oh, is it a compliment? <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean by it begins in the clouds? <laughs> um, but yeah, just like taking, it's like an awareness of like, Okay, I think of a poem as being done when it's like completed the thought that it sets out to do. So, you know, that's not a real weakness. Tell me a real weakness. That's a very short poem, but it's a complete thought to me. It's also something I overheard at a coffee shop in Fremont. So it's like a mother, that's like a literal (laughs) transcription of a, of a scene um, without any embellishment really from me. Well, except some of the description of the daughter. But um, yeah, the I like that idea of a mind questioning itself. Um, and I think if I'm thinking about the Silk Norsei poem, the questions came later, um, like the last line, like in earlier drafts, I got to like the last line, but it wasn't this one nor this. And those kind of set up this idea of a self-awareness to the poem like it's you know there's like a line we could cross so it's you know referencing the poetic line in in a way so that self-reference that self-questioning kind of came into the poem I think a little bit later mm. um 
And it, yeah, it started with just uh, reading a dictionary definition for say and finding out that it was a type of fabric, like an archaic. So that's like a surge, a delicate surge kind of comes from, and silk nor say, I'm forgetting now, but it's from the OED. It's like one of one of the references to, um, like an old idiom or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, it's like, like a, mm. well, you know how the OED has like all the etymologies and it traces the history of the world. I love. Word. Shout out Seattle Public define, Library because you can you read define, it for free. Um, oh, amazing. OED for our Oh. <laughs> the, well, yeah, OED. Yeah, yeah, OED, yeah. Well, the Oxford English Dictionary, which is very uh, expensive, <laughs> uh, to have a subscription to, but free through uh, Seattle Public Library and maybe other public libraries. Um, mm. But yeah, so I like to look at, I think I remember reading a um, an article about John McPhee, the nonfiction writer. And this article was saying like, you're, you're using the wrong dictionary. And then it talked about how like older dictionary, like dictionary.com often has like very straightforward uh, definitions, but if you go to older dictionaries where you get the whole history of the world, it's such like a much richer like source for language. And it was referring to how John McPhee used to do that. Like if he was um, trying to, I think the example that article uses is sport. So he's trying to find like another way to say sport. He didn't want to keep saying sports. I forget what he's probably <laughs> probably lacrosse. He's a he's a big well, he has lacrosse a super famous fan. tennis book. Too. Oh, tennis. Yeah, yeah, maybe it was tennis, but. Um, you know, he looked at an old definition and found like the definition as a diversion of the field. And then it's like, oh, okay. So now by introducing this slightly different language, something it's, it's not, um, yeah, I've just always enjoyed poetry that kind of plays with language and different sources. Jennifer Chang does that. I know we'll talk about her poems later, but, um, yeah. Do you, I guess like as a matter of crafting a poem, do you, when you feel the impulse to repeat like a word, do you, I guess like how do you ensure that it stays alive or is recast in that, in like a different way? I think in terms of the, the vitality of an individual word comes from the music and how it's, you know how it's used, right? Like music repeats words all the time. You have songs that just say the same line forever <laughs> and ever, and you you buy that and you you stick around for that. And I think poetry can work the same way. So I would say I just read it aloud to myself as part of the writing process, you know, like just revising, repeating lines to myself out loud. And then that's... <laughs> And then it it either works or it doesn't, and no one really tells you. (laughs) (laughs) You hope it works, but... (laughs) No one really tells you. (laughs) You need to get some better poetry friends who will tell you if it's working or not. It's true. It's a crucial resource. Yeah. So I've taken a couple classes with you, Bill, at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, And one thing I really appreciate about taking classes with you is sort of the lack of pretense and preciousness. in your sort of approach to particularly generative writing that feels as a student particularly permissive um, in a way that just like allowed me to create a lot more work and at least like quiet maybe the internal editor a little bit. Um, That said, uh, you know, that risks uh, conveying to students that the work is not serious. 
which I don't think you intend to do and I don't think you necessarily do. Um, but it's also not a place that you particularly stay when teaching. So I'm curious, like, how do you balance then sort of that, like, lack of preciousness while also, like, maintaining that the work is serious? Thinking in particular of um, Vivi Francis, who Gabby and I had a chance <laughs> to have a workshop with, who, you know, does a whole bit um, about how poetry is as old as utterance and that to engage with it is to engage in the oldest conversation of humanity. <laughs> Um, <laughs> Except for the two poles, no, <laughs> right? No pressure. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. How? <laughs> I, yeah. Like how? How do you hold those two things at the same time, or respond to the latter? I I think I've I've looked to poet. I've I've always been inspired by, not maybe not always. I've been more recently inspired by poems that let everything in, and so like thinking about my own personal experience in terms of undergraduate workshops and graduate workshops. I just remember like my first workshop of graduate school, um, like bringing in this poem and like just feeling the tension. There's just like a lot of tension in that situation that is going to affect the way you're, the type of poem you're writing, I think. And it becomes like a seriousness off, like, oh God, now what terrible thing happened that I can write a poem about? And that's kind of what I did for a while I was like this poignant meaningful moment <laughs> I have to then investigate um and I think I just kind of grew away from that I got a little I felt like my poems were one is like <laughs> felt like I was gonna cry every time I read one <laughs> in workshop yeah. and then also uh, felt that it wasn't all of myself in the poems. And so I, th I think of it as like a, a license to bring all of your person mm. into the poem in terms of like whether, you know, your sense of humor, your, your observations of the daily world, your history, your family, you know, like everything I think should be in poems. And I think there are plenty of um, examples of poets who do that. Uh, but yeah, I also don't disagree with Ivy Francis. That's that's a of good quote. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> smart, smart man. <laughs> yeah, and I don't mean to um, suggest that it's like by any means frivolous, mm -hmm. right? To be unprecious about poems and the making of poems. I guess like I'm curious. I think that that's a risk that I think a lot of people and I think for myself, too, it's something I remind myself often when I'm, like, feeling unprecious about the making of poems. It's, like, particularly helpful, again, in the crafting, but, like, not necessarily, like, it's easy to slip into the frivolity mm -hmm. and to, like, you know, I think maybe participate in the sort of, like, production and churn of just, like, what do words mean anyway, and it's all meaningless, Um how do you, yeah, and like, yeah. Cynic, and like cynicism. Well, so I mentioned, aside. I mentioned that kind of move in my writing, like away from that. Maybe it's self-serious. Maybe it's, you know, it's maybe it's, that's an internal thing. I think there's maybe some, I was previously blaming it all externally. Now I'm realizing, but, <laughs> and I think there's something there, but then I did write maybe funnier poems, goofier poems mm -hmm. um, for a period after my MFA program, especially and I didn't, you know, I, when I graduated with my MFA, I remember like one of my advisors saying, this is such a great book. And I was like, no, it's not. It's not a book. Uh. <laughs> I was like, I knew that like I didn't, I was not going to do anything with that. And I never did. And mm. then 
I wrote other poems that I think were, yeah, quirkier, funnier. But then I felt like, no, nah, this isn't, it's not goofy. Like, I don't want, <laughs> I don't, I don't think poetry should just be that either. So yeah. I Did you kind of over have to overcorrect to so. undo what you had learned in your MFA experience and then kind of come to this middle that then that the book you did create came out of? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. It could be like, you know, the third or fourth book in terms of like amount of poems written, but I'm kind of, well, I am, I am glad it's not. (laughs) Yeah. I've been talking with so many friends recently who are in the process of undoing their MFA experience, whatever that means for them. Um, And I do think it's true that often there is that, like you said, a two year sort of gap after the MFA before you start writing the work that's actually going to be your first book, because there's that period of, right, kind of necessarily countering certain things that were maybe overemphasized at your particular program, um, you know, personal neuroses, whatever they are. Um, But it's just, it's been interesting to talk with lots of people recently, it feels like, about how they are struggling against what they were taught in formal educational settings. Um, Yeah. Well, at at the same time, I, I, I was just, I just saw one of my, um, MFA teachers in Montana last weekend, Melina Morling, the Swedish poet. And she, we were just kind of talking about different classes. And I was thinking about how, you know, I took a class on psychology and literature, um, international poetry, French poetry. What um, great classes. Yeah, they're, oh they're great classes. And they, they're, I was, it was my introduction to like more surreal, for lack of a better word, work. And so I think, you know, they're, despite, um, despite what I said earlier um there you know there were different pulls in that different different experiences that I was I don't know if I would have read otherwise I guess that's the idea of education (laughs) turns out turns out but going back to what DG said I was thinking about how I teach similarly in my college classes so I teach most mostly composition classes I teach one poetry class a year um, and I much prefer the composition class for what, for whatever reason. Um, hot takes. Yeah, hot takes. <laughs> hot takes, yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know. It's, uh, but I, you know, I have the students write about themselves. Like every essay has a personal component, and I think they are kind of confused <laughs> by that. So they're like, what? What's, where's the thesis? And I'm like, no, there are theses. If my, <laughs> if my dean is listening, there are there is a thesis involved. Those learning objectives that, yeah. are getting hit. <laughs> the course learning objectives are clearly <laughs> outlined on the syllabus. Yeah, um, but I think like having that like I think I it would be one boring if I was just mm-hmm. reading uh, like seventy five essays about the same short story. Um, so trying to get people to write about their personal experience in that setting, I think it's also true for, um, in a poetry setting as well, like getting, people don't always feel like they have license to write about their own experience. Um, so they have to see that their observation, there's poetry in their observations because I think we would all agree that there's poetry in daily life. But then if we sit down and are putting a bunch of pressure (laughs) on like the poem as the thing in front of us, then that's going to be, I don't know. It seems like I wouldn't want to write that way. It makes it hard to write. Uh, I've heard through the grapevine that when you teach poetry workshops, you often offer really great generative prompts. 
So I was wondering if um, maybe for people listening who are looking for a way to shake things up, if just off the top of your head, you could offer a couple, one or two uh, that you think students have responded to in particularly interesting or fruitful ways. Anything that comes to mind in terms of a generative prompt? Well, I was just I was just teaching a class um, titled Generative Revision. So that's Ooh. more in my yeah, in my mind. That works too, I think. Um, but that was the the kind of basis of that class. It's has revision in the title, but it's not really about revising all the time. It's about like trying to enliven your work, I would say, basically. So um, one aspect of that class is kind of putting the one of the exercises we do is putting the writing process into the poem so like I have students bring in a poem that's not working and it's like okay now new version um write about the process of writing that poem that's not working like what you know what was going on with you when you were writing that 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 poem where were you what were you responding to just kind of trying to open that up again. And that partly comes from reading um, Banu Kapil's Banan Banyu, <laughs> the, which is, you know, her a prose book, prose poetry. I'm not sure exactly where it falls on the genre spectrum, but um, writing in that book, she's telling the story of failing to write a novel about this character. And so then the book becomes a story of that failure. So I like that, that idea of kind of going back to a poem that has quote unquote failed and um, opening it up that way. Um, I also like to introduce other language, whether it's dictionary, etymology language, or, um, you know, like a governmental language, like language from an outside source um, to, as a way to freshen a poem. I think there's a Sulmaz Sharif poem, Safe House, safe houses, <laughs> something like that, that does that, kind of has that, the officious language, the official language kind of put into the personal experience, and I like the tension of that. Um, another favorite exercise, which I gave to a workshop that I think Duji was in, and then um, made its way into the book, my writing from that workshop was just taking the beginning of um, Ted Bergen's poem, Redshift, which is an amazing poem and you have to go to Penn Sound and listen to him read it because mm. you could read it yourself, but to hear like his voice tremble <laughs> as he reads oh, it wow. is pretty remarkable. Um, that poem's in my manuscript. Is it? Yeah. yeah. Oh, good, good. Endorsement. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But he begins, I forget the time. It begins with a time. Here I am, 11 a.m., 11.23 a.m. And then you fill in the rest. Yeah, and then you oh, fill in the rest. Oh, and then you go from there. Yeah, and it, that becomes a way of like, just kind of like, okay, here I am, I'm responding, and then everything else will eventually, you know, other stuff yeah. will come in, but it's yeah. a grounding. In my experience of your class, that is actually like one of my favorite experiences in a poetry class is like, in your sort of like check-in, someone will say like the most bizarre thing that they experienced that week. And I think one fellow student was like, yeah, I saw, uh, I saw a hog chew on a cantaloupe, a cantaloupe hole and you're like, great, that's the start of your poem. That's your assignment. Like, that's your first line and write the rest. Yeah. Yep. And, like, I love that as, like, mm. a general, like, default move that when you hear that, it's like, great, that's the start of the poem. Now write the rest of it. Um, 
Yeah. yeah. I love yeah. that too. Responding to people's actual lived experiences and the things that people say that for whatever reason they assume can't be in the poem because they haven't, maybe it's not overwrought yet or something. And then just to have a teacher say, that's the beginning of your poem and giving that permission and that assignment and that challenge. And it's so antithetical to, um, like, I think a question that poetry writ large is sort of wrestling against, which is like writing poems that sound like poems. Right, like it is like a really great way to disrupt that, um, and as part of that sort of permissiveness that you allow in the generative space. Yeah. Also, like the the preciousness of the poem, right? Like the idea, like just write what you're saying, and that's the poem, right? Like every day we write poems when we speak out loud, but let's take that and make it an actual poem. That then becomes like, oh, a poem so precious, or oh, my sweet little baby, like no, like. <laughs> Put the ugly shit in there, right. like, like talk yeah. about that damn hog yeah. in the catalog, <laughs> yeah. like, and then what else is next, right? So, like taking away that preciousness is what makes poetry so relatable, and it, it creates a human experience that we're not really used to, but we know how to relate to. Yes. Yeah, and I mean, it doesn't always work either, and that's of okay, not. right? Like yeah. I have, yeah. I have like, of course, <laughs> hundreds of iPhone notes that are like just you know not interesting at all, but like I was yeah thinking about like what how what makes into your poems like the the thing like the sensation I can recall in my body most from like the last week of my life is walking down the street and uh taking a step and then there's like a rat right where a dead rat right where my foot is gonna go is this on the Burt Gilman trail and then like uh and then that like physical sensation that like goes up through that foot where you're like no I can't step but then you can like oh. feel it in your shoulder and like up your you know like that type of it's not like a pretty thing to put in a poem but like that's like a something that strikes Incredibly a nerve, evocative a nerve yeah. Right? yeah yeah um when it comes to um your book of poems how do you how did you approach revision i i just was n- I think I'm happy with it now. There are some things I would change. (laughs) I'm mostly happy with it. I just, for a long time, even after it was accepted, I knew it wasn't done. Like I knew, um, I sent out, it was always like, I would say there was like 40% of it that would stay the same. And then there was like 20% I wasn't sure of. And then like 40% of like churning new stuff into the manuscript. And so, I, was, I just kind of knew that it hadn't found its form throughout much of the writing, like years of the writing process. And I was playing with different sections and move, moving things around. And, you know, for whatever reason, it had four sections forever. I guess it's feels it's a square. Mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> Something, <laughs> square number. Um, but once I found the fifth section, then it, that gave me like, cause there are two long sequences um, and then three sections of just poems, individual poems. And I think finding that was like the balance I wanted. Then there was like, cause I had kind of two long section, two long sections before and I, I couldn't figure it. They were never in balance within the, within the manuscript. I don't think I could, I couldn't put them in the right place basically, but then having them kind of, snug around other sections of poems started to make sense and then I um I did some like within those sequences I basically 
change the first sequence is mostly first person and then the second s sequence is mostly um, we like first person plural um, so that was like a, a late you know like <laughs> really late change that I think kind of settled it in and then otherwise I was shifting you know I've I always had like ideas like this is the political section even though mm -hmm. that political was in quotation marks for the listeners um <laughs> the you know that was the political section even though no one like I had, had to develop um thematic ideas in my own head that I don't think are that important for reading <laughs> the poems necessarily but it was like my way of of shuttling things around and figuring out where things fell within the manuscript yeah can you say a little more um even about the beginning of the book like the process where it started um how it started um all those things um so i'd say there are some in terms of where the book began there are some poems in the book that are quite old like maybe 10 years old or something but mostly small fragments of poems but the the bulk of the like material that became this book started when I had a fellowship at the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown, which was, I should remember, maybe 2013, 2014, <laughs> maybe 2014, 2015. The Red Sox won the World Series. That was like a distinguishing moment for me. Of course, that's me. how you know what they 20, 2014. 2014. I was yeah. Chicago at the time, so I'm, I think it's 2014. 2014, okay. 2014, 15. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is Sports podcast? That's what <laughs> Surprise. Yeah. <laughs> Good. How did I get um, here? <laughs> Dooji's got an Edgar Martinez um, t-shirt on. It's true. Looking good. Hall of Famer. Um, anyway. 20 <laughs> Shout out to Provincetown. Shout out to you Provincetown. 2014, 2015. Um, so during that winter, like October to May, um, I had a reading like every fellow, there are five poets, five fiction writers, 10 visual artists, and every fellow has a reading. And mine was the first reading. And I was really determined to read all new stuff. So that was in December. So I had to read like 20 minutes of all new poems. And I like really did it. <laughs> like really wrote a bunch of new poems. And I would say a handful of those, maybe four or five of those are in the book. Wow. Um, and then uh, the second half of that residency, I really... Um, I did a lot of reading and brooding and looking at snow. I would imagine that would be a, yeah, a good landscape and place to do a lot of brooding. Yeah, I yeah. imagine it Walking. being just like miserably cold and lonely. I was going on like really long run walks through the dunes in winter. Everyone else, everyone else was seeing whales all the time and I wasn't seeing whales and I was <gasps> mad about fuck. that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Angsty uh, whale poems. Yeah. <laughs> Angsty whale poems. How come? Yeah, so there are like a lot of the poems I'd tie to that landscape, even though they're not, they might not mention it specifically. Um, but I, yeah, I, I, during the second half of that fellowship, I was taking a lot of notes. And then, so a lot of the writing of the book, I would, a lot of its poems I just kind of wrote as over, over time. Not, I don't know that there's any interesting grand story, but um, even within the last year, a lot of the kind of final poems I put in were observations of um, things I saw in Provincetown and uh, notes from long failed poem sequences <laughs> that I cannibalized to write these. So like the Aurora section in this book, which ostensibly recalls like buses, yeah, like kind of moving through the city. Um, 
also has like a few sections that are like things I saw in Provincetown, but there were kind of you know, tiny moments of observation that I thought worked within that section anyway. So that's where, that's where it started. And yeah, it took a while to find that, that shape for the book. Um, I think before you were talking about, um, no, I don't think you were talking about, um, <laughs> the move from like kind of writing these really deeply sad, somber poems into writing like these like fun, happy humor poem, and then like trying to like find a balance in between. And so for me, being from Seattle, my poems are all about the trauma Seattle brings to me. Like it's about right. rain, I am depressed, right? And so, <laughs> which for me feels very Seattle until I read your book. And so your book to me is like the epitome of Seattle, right? It's like, it has all these things from tech to quirkiness to the, the somberness of it, right? To the huge clouds. Um, so I really want to know how has Seattle really influenced your poetics, even now? Right. Well, I, I think, yeah, I would, I think especially, so a lot of the, I have, I have a four-year-old daughter and a lot of the poems that I've written, I would say in the last four years have started, my process changed because it used to be, I would take notes, I would sit down at my desk daily, sometimes daily, <laughs> sometimes weekly, whenever I was writing and I would you know, sit down to write. And that's when I wrote and I, you know, would go through my note. A lot of the poems I would say were kind of going through jotting down fragments. And then a lot of the poems are kind of an accumulation of fragments from that notebook, like trying to look for a thread that ties different thoughts together. Um, more recently, a lot of those notes have been like notes I've taken on my phone on the bus in transit from between one place to another. Um, you know, while doing stroller walks or running with a stroller or something like that, you see something. So I think that that in terms of like the influence of the city, it comes through those direct observations. Um, the 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 poem Loris Nobilis. I forget the rest of the title. It's too long. <laughs> Grecian laurel. Grecian laurel. Loris Nobilis, sweet bay, true or Grecian laurel. That's it. Um, That's it. That's the drink. <laughs> it was inspired by this drink. Yep. <laughs> time time shifting. Um, time but, you know, that was like a poem. I went on this walk and this person, you know, yelled at me just like jogging stroller. Jog. And I was like, yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> and then, you know, there's vomit on the sidewalk and there are these kids like looking like they wanted to be smoking, but they weren't smoking. And that, you know, so that poem just kind of came out of that. And then there's like, readings quotes in that poem as well but um so i think like letting the the city um into the poem into the poems that way um i don't really know in terms like i feel seattle's also a very vibrant literary community so i feel like i should have an answer in terms of how the the community has a uh has influenced me, but I don't know that I, I do specifically other than to say that there, it's, there are so many different events going on, so many different readings that hearing different voices of people from within the city, people outside of the city, that's obviously going to be valuable. Cause I, even when I'm sometimes even the, uh, the thought of going to a reading is enough to get me to write. Like I've, I've been, so I remember I've been like multiple like you times. you don't want to go to a reading? Well, no, I, I know that I'm going to be mad that I haven't been writing if I go to the, I've like mm. multiple times been like en route to a reading and I'm like, 
leave the family behind. I'm going to the reading. And then I'm like, oh, no, I have to write. Because <laughs> if I go to this reading right now, I'm just going to be mad at myself because I don't want to write. I <laughs> one time told the poet, oh, I didn't come to your reading because it, your, the idea of your reading made me want to write so much that I couldn't I think that's go. a high compliment. How did I, they react? I don't know. Maybe. Not great. Maybe medium. <laughs> Medium. Oh, yeah, that is kind of it's a, a little, it's a little too, maybe a little too honest. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I love it. If yeah. you're going to be too something, I feel like that's a good right. one. Yeah. We've talked with some other poets on the podcast before who were also parents um, about some of the ethical questions around writing about your kids. And when you, when you brought up your daughter, it made me wonder not so much specifically about that, but were there any like particular ethical questions that came up for you in writing this book that you felt like you were grappling with or had to come to more of an understanding for yourself in order to publish this book? Well, yeah, I would say, so the, like thinking about, I don't know if it, I don't know if I've thought too much about my kids, to be honest. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, I, I would say... I um they're pretty little. So it's like a I was actually did a reading and my daughter was there and uh somebody Matthew Oldman <laughs> asked me afterwards, he's like, Does she know she she do you think she realizes the poems that poem was about her? And I was like, I don't know, maybe <laughs> <laughs> like she probably but also not. Um she did pick the color of the book. She Aww. she was like purple. I like the purple one. Um, That's so sweet. But like there's one poem, Happy-ish, in here that begins with uh, my wife positions a solar animal repellent device near the garden. She says, if you see a cat in the yard, shoot it. And so that's like a thing my wife actually said to me. And the early drafts of the poem said, my wife's name is Cat, so Cat Positions. And she was like, no, you got to take that. It's also a little confusing now, cat, cat, but yeah. um, maybe it wouldn't out have loud. worked anyway. But she was like, no, don't you get, get my name out of your poems. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I've heard people yeah. talk about that and I've heard, I can't remember where I heard that, but like poets talk about taking names out of poems when they read them later. Um, and so that's something I, I was, yeah, I wasn't going to use people's names. I was, I never really felt... Like I had to, I didn't, I wasn't totally sure. It's also weird to like assign person, someone a title <laughs> otherwise, like my wife, you know, For like sure. that's also yeah. a strange thing. So, um, but in terms of the kids, yeah, they don't really show up. I mean, when they come in, it's like, feels incidental and like passing. I, w I don't claim to speak for them. I'm not like using their words. Um, there was a poem that was just words my daughter said that I <laughs> took out late, but it might, it was when there's an owl in the sky, you never see the sky. Whoa. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. It seemed like too, too good. Yeah. <laughs> Cause then if you put that in the book and then everyone wanted to quote that and talk about how that was the best part of the whole book, yeah, yeah. you wouldn't have been able no. to deal with that. No, no. <laughs> Can we use it? Yeah. I'm, I'm gonna take that. <laughs> Submittable. <laughs> Submittable. 
um on the nature tip uh i um don't write very many nature poems hardly at all um i i think in large part because i'm like still figuring out how to experience nature unmediated um and what i'm really interested in your book my favorite one of my favorite poems being deer stream uh which is like playing big buck hunter so it's like experiencing nature through that um reminded me like or like felt emblematic of many of the speakers in this poem and so far as like the speaker is sort of obsessed or dealing with how they are experiencing the experience that is happening um and so i guess i'm curious like where that obsession comes from and sort of this like paradoxical impulse to unmediate an experience through the medium of poetry? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. No. <laughs> so the, the poem that I've been most, like thinking about how nature is mediated, I think it goes back to like letting more of your life in and being honest about your experience of nature, right? And I think this is, it's true, this would be true like in terms of poetry, but also in terms of like the way people write about na like nature writing as a genre in general, I think people are more open to like the human, the human as mediator in nature. Like you're never going to get away from that. You have to recognize you're a destroyer of the planet. Yeah. <laughs> writing about the, the planet. Yeah. Even having an unmediated experience kind of with anything, but particularly with nature because yeah, we, we have effects. We have minds. Yeah. Yeah, and so in terms of, like, I was thinking about this experience where I saw um, a seal. This was also in Provincetown. Saw a seal on the beach, like, at the end, you know, like, miles away from anything. And I I knew it was fine, but then I was like, it kind of looks like it might be struggling. And then you know you're supposed to leave you know mammals alone there's a marine mammal protection act for a reason <laughs> for, like, for, like, uh, for uh, bad scientists like myself um but the uh, yeah anyway so i was thinking about that experience and then i was thinking about looking up look youtube videos of like how do you know if a seal is stranded what do you do with a stranded <laughs> seal and so that i didn't actually do that on the beach then i think i did call the hotline and they were like it's fine. <laughs> Just get away. Just walk away. Just walk away. <laughs> Carry on. Um, but when I was writing a poem about it, I like started to think about, you know, stranded. Or I was like thinking back to that experience. I was like, well, was it really <laughs> stranded or not stranded? And I was looking at um, YouTube videos, and then there's this video. I think it's it was either in Oregon or Washington, and there these cops like dealing with a seal in like the type of like a uh, military way that only a cop could deal with a seal. Oh You're like, God. Oh my God, what are they going to do? You know, like oh. it's just like the dynamic of like the police and then like the people in jeans and a sweatshirt who are like, look like it's fine. And then like the seriousness of like the SUV in the sand and the, oh the big God. guys with their tools. Um, but anyway, so I was thinking about like, you know, that's like a, you, there's like a, Surreal is such a bad word to use, but there's it, there is almost a surreal surreal yeah. <laughs> surreal surreality surreality sure. to like the way like a device or the internet like layers on our experience that I think is 
interesting. So rather than just talking about like, I am a perfect nature poet writing about how daffodils inspire me. Um, I'm going to, you know, be honest about the experience, which is even when I am backpacking in the mountains of the cascade in the cascades, you're sometimes you're directly beneath, you know, the sea tack landing pattern and you're watching planes all night over the lake or like, you know, I have my star star app. So I'm, you know, yeah. reading, looking at the star app and then I'm reading the mythological stories behind the stars and things like that. So yeah. And in the pictures, maybe it's like, Oh, look at this beautiful mountain lake. But then the actual experience is different. So I think it's about um, wanting to get that actual experience on on the page and with Deerstream was like a a great example for that because it's um the seattle artist project of he took a a buck from he took a i don't know where the buck was from but he took the buck from nature <laughs> and put it into grand theft auto and then like at, that buck would wander through the game and um you know the world the game world would respond to that buck as if it were a character. So some people would talk to it. Some people would shoot at it. Sometimes it would wander outside of the city, up into the hills, on the beach, all that type of stuff. And there was something uh, kind of calming about like that figure of like an impervious. It's, po- it's so poignant and <laughs> yeah. ridiculous. At yeah, the same it's time. totally. Yeah. And so the artist um, streamed that for a full weekend and, you know, it, read about it online and checked it out. And I think you can look at the, the archive of it now, but it's, it's kind of an intro. I have not watched the whole thing, mm-hmm. but, um, it is like a, it was, yeah, it was a striking way. So, and I was also taken with the stream, uh, the play on stream. So like a deer stream sounds like a bucolic place, but then it's also like a stream video streaming. So, um, I think I started with that idea and then kind of moved on. Yeah, I have. I feel like I have so many poem drafts um, about like flowers that actually start with me like looking up whether or not this is the flower that I think it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I feel like so much. I, I, I mean, and maybe it's like a function of like late capitalism and where we are in 2019. But I feel like it. Uh, sort of to your point of letting more into the poem. So much of like what we consider nature writing now is actually like sort of how we reconcile our actual experience with what we think a sort of like, or what we have been inherited as what a nature poem should be. Um, and that shit is just like messy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm thinking like, uh, like a few recent books, like, uh, Brian tears, doomstead days, um, a sand book by Ariana rains and, um, Brandon Shimoda's The Desert. Like, those are books that I think of those as being nature. They're, like, very evocative of a landscape, and but it's a landscape that is very humanized, right? Mm-hmm. Even, even like, even if it's something like a, like the desert that isn't, you know, is a supposedly inhospitable landscape, right? But um, we still manage to, you know, do bomb testing. <laughs> we still manage to, you know, damn the dam the rivers and draw the conduct our, our create our aqueducts and things like that so um yeah the like thinking about like those are poets who i read and um i was just reading brian tears book and he's 
I would say very much mediating his experience of, of nature. I forget the name of the first poem in that book, but it's kind of, it feels like a story of walking and then like dealing with a disaster as it's happening, like watching um, an ecological disaster unfold. 2019. 2019. Um, which, On this day, the global climate strike that's right. is yeah. happening today. Yeah. And, and Shout out. Sort of, uh, it provokes for me the question of like, if, if this is sort of a trend in like current nature, quote unquote, like sort of nature poems as like a way to reconcile what we've inherited and like our actual experience. I mean, climate strike, uh, notwithstanding and being very relevant like then what comes next right like how do you reconcile with the reconciling of nature i mean i think of the poem by robert hayden um i forget what it's called now but it's a poem where he is on fisk's campus and there are like a lot of dead birds on the campus and like how he kind of uh, um sees those birds and kind of like thinks about what that means in relation to himself um, and I don't know if it's, and mind you, he's an older poet, so it could be going back to like how nature interacts with human and all the other stuff like that, right? Um, but I think there's, I don't think there really is an after, like a next, because like we're, we're always going to be a part of nature. It's always going to happen. We're always going to be, um, doing things to interrupt nature yeah. and doing things to help nature. Like, there's no way for us to just not be right um we're just in relation with it's all, yeah, yeah there's 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 no after because the after will be death right that's that's pretty much it right like so back to that hayden poem it's like there's no way to get around it if it's on campus you're on campus you can't oh my oh where is it at like my eyes are closed i can't see the, the dead bird it's like no you can't see the dead bird you're choosing not to and so maybe the after mm. is ignorance mm. but i don't it's ignorance also a death like i don't like uh, uh, no <laughs> well, I think I think we're always going to be responding to phenomena, right? Like so, like whatever, and that's going to be. I think there's this tenor and of like the coming apocalypse, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's like a. It becomes like a shorthand. Like it becomes the end of a conversation to say like this is the end. You know, it's mm -hmm. it's all Fuck this is it's bad. all yeah. everything's bad. This is how it's gonna end. Um, which it could, I suppose, but like I, it, it seems, strikes me as like a short shortcut. Like there's going to be experiences and like people having those experiences and like how like poets are going to have to write about that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the there, there. Rain plumps the country up, and the country was plenty plump enough. A big country with its big yellow mouth of an interstate warning, hard edge, until we felt the soft shoulder give way beneath our tires, jerk the wheel to the left, toward some consolation forming in a far corner of the hangar. Air power. Maybe war would bring the Farsi closer. Better we let oars do that. The ambassador said, this error will find another war to hide behind. Were those blue bells in the field? No, helmets abandoned by the occupying forces. The ambassador said, the cities are violent, yes, but you'll be fine if it's raining.
So we woke to see if water fell as the day began, as war began for the day before the day began for those who began the war. It was us. We heard it on the radio. That's how we knew. Thank you to Bill for chilling with us and chatting with us about my hometown, Seattle, about clouds, and of course, all things, you guessed it, clowns. Um, <laughs> thank you to the Flavor Blue for our awesome theme music. Thank you, Bridget Kelly, and to you, beautiful listeners, for being here in space and time. Please, if you haven't already, take a quick moment to rate us five stars and write a little review about how wonderful we are, because you know we are. Um, And that helps other folks for Poetry Podcast to find us, and hopefully they will also rate us cinco stars. Follow us on Twitter at Poet Salon Pod and send on your questions, your burning desires for chocolates and wines and nuts and berries, and send that all to <laughs> the Poet Salon Pod at gmail.com.